1: Welcome to Episode 17 of South Coast, A Shaman's Tale from the Golden Age of the Solar Clipper. Written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 36 Aram's Inlet, April 12, 2305 Tony looked dubiously down into the boat moored alongside the pier. It was one of Jake's 10-meter open utility boats, and it had a motor, pilot station, and lots of empty deck space. The two people working on the boat—Tony couldn't help but think of them as kids— were settling paired crates of gear along the stern and stacks of empty fish boxes on the bow. In one of the crates of each pair was a slimy mess consisting of smelly bits of fish and meters of rope. The rope predominated, which made the redolent chunks of fish even that much more disgusting by comparison, the other crate had a pair of buoys and anchors. Talk to me, guys. How does this work, he asked. Brendan Bales, the taller of the two, paused in his stowage and straightened up with a grin. Easy, he said. We toss one anchor and buoy out to set one end of the line, and we run out a half a kilometer and let the baited line trail out behind us. It's weighted to sink to the bottom. When the line runs out, the other anchor and buoy go over the side. We mark the location in our GPS log, and off we go. Next day we come back, pick up the buoy, pull in the line, and see what we got. His buddy, Charlie something that Tony never did hear, added, Yeah. Billy Sampson was standing on the dock with Tony and pointed out the smaller lines tied to the rope. Those lighter lines are attached so the baited hooks actually aren't tied directly to the rope. Charlie added, Yeah. How long can these be? Tony asked. Long as we want. Brendan replied. Half a kilometer is about as long as I'm interested in lifting without hoist, so that's what we got. Those tubs of line and fresh parts get heavy, Jimmy pointed out. He was impressed with the two men and the fact that they were in fact going out to retrieve the line they'd placed yesterday. In only a couple of days, Billy had managed to get the fledgling longline project underway to the point where the first landings would be ashore in a few stands. Yeah, Charlie confirmed with a grin. Tony and Jimmy exchanged a glance as the two fishermen finished their stowage, took one last look around. You guys hang out a lot together? Tony asked. Brendan said, oh yeah, me and Charlie here have been fishing together for, well, forever, ain't we, Charlie? Yeah, Charlie said. Quite the conversationalist, ain't he? Tony commented. Oh yeah, always got something to say, Charlie does. Charlie grinned and nodded. Yeah, he said. So what do you guys talk about? Tony asked. Unable to stop himself. Charlie looked up at Tony and said, Well, usually I like talking about the social and ethical implications of the post diasporan rise of the corporate planet state, but Brandon, he likes to talk about girls. Yeah, Brendan said. Now, if you nice people would excuse us, I think we got fish to catch. Charlie grinned up at the stunned faces on the pier, flipped the line free, and Brendan goosed the motor, sending the light boat dancing across the bay. Charlie waved a jaunty wave and settled down for the ride. As they sped off over the water, Tony looked at Billy and asked, "'Are they always like that?' "'Like what?' Billy asked. Jimmy made a sound that was suspiciously laugh-like but ended with a hoarse coughing. "'Never mind,' Tony said with a grin. "'Well, they'll be back in four or five stands. The first trial lines are just outside the harbor. They ran in parallel to coast about two kilometers out. There's a shelf there. It's only twenty meters down.' Jimmy nodded thoughtfully. That sounds like a good plan. Billy said, well, it's a start. I wonder if we can get enough people to do this to make it worthwhile, though. A hundred megatons is a lot of fish. Is that what we're going to need? Jimmy asked, still looking out over the harbor to where the small boat was pounding along the surface chop. No, he admitted, but it's looking more and more like we'll need at least twenty-five to make up what the grounds aren't providing. The model's so close I can't say we should pull any more boats off, because if we do, we'll be short on the other side. So if we put out enough boats, we reduce the fish. If we reduce the boats, it's not enough to land what we need. Yeah, Billy said. Tony and Jimmy both looked at him hard to see if he was playing with them, but he seemed totally oblivious. Well, Billy said, I need to go talk to Dad about getting some additional electronics put on the boat when they bring it back. It needs radar if it's going outside the harbor, and a better binnacle. Yeah, Jimmy said, I was wondering about that. It was what we had for them to use at the moment, Billy said, but we're going to have to give them better gear. He waved and headed back down the pier toward the yard. Jimmy thrust his hands in his pockets and hunched his shoulders. The sun was warm, but the wind still had a winter bite as it swept in across the bay. He stared out to sea. Twenty-five megatons? Tony asked. Yeah, Jimmy said, and they both laughed. That's really close, Tony noted. It's not close enough for contract compliance, Jimmy said. Jimmy's hand brushed up against the wooden figurine, forgotten in his jacket pocket from two days before. He pulled it out and held it up to see what, exactly, it was. When he flipped it over and saw the purple shell inlaid in the breast, he froze. Tony sucked in a sharp breath. Jimmy, where did you get a Welkie? he asked, his eyes riveted on the figure in Jimmy's hand. Jimmy was as shocked as Tony. I went to Calum's Cove the other day to see Alan about starting this crabbing operation out there. I met the shaman and his son while I was there, and he gave me this. Who, the shaman? No, Jimmy said, gazing at the primitive gull in his fingers. The son. Tony screwed up his face in disbelief. The son, he asked. Jimmy nodded slowly. Yeah, strange kid. Turns out he's one of the residential experts in crab collection, too, but this was after. After what? After Alan and I got done talking to Rachel Krug about spearheading the development of the crab fishery. "'We were leaving their house, and these two guys ran into us as we were leaving. "'They seemed nice enough. "'Richard doesn't seem to have suffered any long-term issues. "'But his son gave me this. "'I didn't really look at it till now. "'I didn't realize it was a Welkie.' "'Son of a shaman,' Tony said gently. "'Well, this one is certainly running true to his genes,' Jimmy said distantly "'as he turned the figure back and forth, trying to identify what kind of gull it was. "'He said I needed this. "'The son did.' What kind of gull is it? Tony asked. It looks familiar, but I can't place it. I've got the same problem, Jimmy said. I know what this is. I just can't dredge it up. Did he say why you needed it? Jimmy shook his head. No, he just handed it to me and said I needed it, and we left, and it's been in my jacket pocket ever since. Why would he give you a seagull? Jimmy shrugged. I have no idea. Well, you could ask him, Tony suggested. Jimmy turned his gaze from the figure to Tony. Yeah, well, maybe not, Tony said in reply. Jimmy slipped the figure back in his pocket and said, It'll come to me, but right now, I got some projections to work on. Yeah, Tony agreed, and I've got some quarterlies to do. They both took one last look across the bay, sighed, and turned to walk back down the pier. I miss fishing, Tony said as he walked. Fishing or Casey, Jimmy teased. Tony shot him a pained look. Fishing, he asserted. The vehemence with which he made the statement caused Jimmy's lips to twitch a bit. "'Yeah, I know. I miss her, too,' he said. In his pocket, his fingers were tracing the edge of one of the wings, fiddling with the shape. Tony sighed, exasperated with his boss. He knew better than to argue. And besides, he did miss Casey, too. Four stands later, after a very frustrating morning of trying to deal with routine office work, Jimmy was standing on the end of the pier, watching a heavily laden boat slop its way into the channel. It didn't so much wallow along as much as bullets way through the light chop. He had to look twice to make sure it was the boat he was expecting because it was riding so low in the water. His hand pulled the Welkie out of his pocket, and he started flipping it around in his fingers as he watched the boat make its painfully slow way along the channel and across the bay. Charlie was standing in the bow with a mooring line and waved when he saw Jimmy waiting. Brendan ran the boat expertly up to the dock. Charlie stepped off nimbly and lashed a line around a cleat with no wasted movement. Jimmy just stared into the boat. There were fish everywhere. All the empty fish boxes had heads and tails hanging out. He saw boxes of Jace, arvo, Pintos, even Muda. There were several dozen jacks, gutted and laying on the deck, too big for the small fish boxes the boys had taken out. The crates at the stern of the boat were filled with hooks, lines, anchors, and buoys, Craft rode so low, it barely had a half a meter of freeboard left. Ain't that something? Brendan asked Jimmy as he killed the motor. Yeah, Charlie added. I can't believe it, Jimmy said. He was just staring at all the fish. You took a chance taking that many fish aboard. Oh, yeah, Brendan said. Once you start hauling the line in, you kind of have to finish. We had two lines out from yesterday. We could have just pulled the one, but it wasn't that big a load until we got about halfway through the second line. It was a little too late to back out at that point. Yeah, Charlie agreed. Jimmy said, I can see that. Any idea how much this is? Brendan shrugged, no, but it's got to be close to five kilotons. I think that's the cargo rating on this boat. Jimmy did some fast math in his head and began to think there was a chance. While a dragger like the seahorse could pull in 80 kilotons a day, this was only a small fraction. But the other side of the coin was that a dragger cost a lot more to outfit and make seaworthy. He could put 50 of these boats on the water for what it costs for one dragger. That's great work, boys, Jimmy said. If we can get a handle on how consistently you can pull this kind of catch in, that would go a long way toward relieving the quota crunch. He continued staring, flipping the little gull carving in his fingers and running the math in his head. If they could average three tons a day, it would take a thousand boats to land three kilotons and a thousand days to land three megatons. He only had about 200 days, so he'd need... "'5,000 boats doing longlining. "'Draggers had winches, and he wondered if he could scale the operation up "'using the idle draggers at three kilotons per kilometer. "'What you got there?' Brendan asked, "'nodding at the figure that Jimmy was flipping in his fingers. "'Oh, it's a Welky. I got it over in Callum's Cove the other day.' "'He held it up so they could see it.' Brendan whistled through his teeth in admiration. "'That's a beauty. What is it, Beringer's gull?' "'Charlie said, "'Yeah.' Jimmy smiled. Of course. I knew I recognized it. That's what it is, all right. He grinned. An idea forming. Well, thanks, boys, he said. I need to go see a lady about some charts. You two keep it up. This looks very promising. They waved to him as he turned and strode down the pier. The small gall rode in his hand as he headed for the archives to see Janie. Chapter 37, Calum's Cove, April 13, 2305. Richard held a carving up to the pale morning light. He could see what would become an osprey emerging from the wood as he slowly freed it. It was almost time to go in for breakfast, but since the accident he found he woke much earlier and enjoyed the quiet early morning. The half-light seemed a kind of magic time to him. Not night, not day. A good time to listen to the world. "'A knot in the small stove popped. "'A morning bird chir chir chirped somewhere outside. "'Up,' he thought. "'He turned his face until he was looking at where the bird would be. "'In the distance, the waves hammered their relentless slow tattoo "'on the rocks of Bentley's head, "'and above him the trees sighed "'as the wind escaped through their branches. "'Back at the house he heard one of the shells on Otto's staff "'rattle in the breeze, "'or it leaned against the wall beside the kitchen door. "'He settled back to Whittle,' thinking about Otto, his strength, his vision, his gift. Richard only needed to look at him to see it glowing in him. It wasn't yet full. He didn't know how he knew, but he knew that there was a lot of Otto left to develop. He snorted a soft laugh to himself, wondering how he could have been so blind as to have missed it all these months. He sighed and chuckled, grinning to the osprey slowly slipping from the wood in his hands. Makes almost dying worthwhile, I guess, he murmured to it. The osprey didn't answer. Breakfast time, he thought, after a few ticks. He put down his carving and went back to the house. The kitchen was still unoccupied, but he could hear the shower running. He put the kettle on for tea and started a pot of oatmeal with raisins, apples, and cinnamon. One of Rachel's loaves of bread was wrapped and waiting on the sideboard, so he sliced off a couple of slabs and slotted them into the toaster, rummaging in the cupboard for a pot of jam he knew was there. As he was reaching up, her arms snaked around him. "'pulling his back against her front in a loving good morning kind of hug, and he smiled. "'Well, you're feeling frisky this morning,' he commented over his shoulder. "Mm "'Mm-hmm,' she semi-purred against his back. "'Just saying good morning,' she giggled, that bubbly giggle "'that hadn't changed since she'd been a girl, and melted him every time he heard it. "'He stirred the oatmeal, measured the tea.' and smeared a fresh hot slab of toast with jam he'd found before being so delightfully interrupted. He poured water over the tea and set the pot on the table to steep, moving the jammy toast over to keep it company while he put more in the toaster. Glancing up, he saw Rachel sitting on the other side of the kitchen table, her elbows on the surface and leaning forward, watching him with a smile. What? he asked. She just shrugged and smiled coquettishly. Just admiring, she said. He wiggled his butt playfully in her direction. She giggled again and, when it subsided, said, "'I don't remember the last time you were this playful.' He stuck the spurtle into the oatmeal once more and gave it another stir. "'I don't either,' he said, seriously. "'I don't know if I've ever been this playful.' And then he chuckled. Otto came out of the bedroom then and grinned when he saw them. "'Well, good morning. Is it a nice day out there, Father?' "'Spring is upon us, Otto. We should take a walk to the other side of the harbor today.' There are some perennials there that I need to gather while they're still young and green. Otto grinned. Sounds good. I'd like to finish that piece of carving I started yesterday, too. Yes, father answered, and I've got an osprey that's almost free as well. Well, I have to go play with Mary this morning, Murchell contributed. We're going to build a prototype crab pot. Ooh, that sounds interesting, Otto said. The flat nets I made worked pretty well for fishing just one or two. "'Yeah,' Rachel said. "'Mary had me make a couple of those "'so I could get familiar with the different crabs, "'but we need to make something that we can use on the boats.' "'Richard served up the oatmeal and joined them at the table, "'sliding hot bowls of the spicy mixture in front of each. "'That doesn't seem like it would be too difficult,' he said. "'Yeah, I know,' Rachel agreed, "'dipping into the breakfast with enthusiasm. "'The problem is we need to be thinking ahead "'to when there's millions of them scattered across the sea bottom. "'What happens when we lose one?' "'Ah,' Richard said.' Losing one, not that big a deal. But it goes on trapping crabs that just die. Yeah, she said. And with potentially thousands of crabbers, even if they only lose one a season. That's a lot of dead crabs. I'd like to try to avoid that. I never would have thought of it, Otto admitted. Me either, Rachel said. But Mary has this stuff in her head. She's amazing. Well, she's also been studying this for decades, Richard pointed out. Mr. Pirano did well to find her to advise you. The conversation died out to a comfortable silence as they enjoyed the quiet warmth of breakfast. When it was over, the two men shooed Rachel off to play with crabs while they cleaned up before heading to the far side of the harbor to gather herbs. Mary had offered the use of her shed behind the gurry butt for Rachel to work in, it was handy to both the water and Mary, and already had a lot of the materials. She opened the double doors wide to let the morning light flood into the interior. Their latest model crowded everything on the bench. At just over a meter and a half in diameter and a quarter meter tall, the squat cylinder was not much more than a simple frame covered with a large mesh net laced together with soft twine. A shadow moved across the door, and Rachel squinted out to see Mary standing there with a cup of tea and a bemused smile. "'Well, good morning, Rachel. You're at it early.' "'I just wondered how we're going to get enough of these for it to be a valid trial,' she said. "'And how do we know this thing will break down when we want it to?' Mary shrugged one shoulder as she sipped her tea. Well, that design is about as old and stable as they come. That twine we use to lash the bits together will rot after two months in the water. Grabbers just need to carry a spool of it and keep track. It'll turn color before it fails. As for making a lot of them fast, well, we can get the pieces of netting and framing done at the fabrication shop in the inlet. Maybe we can get some help around the village to put them together. So you think this is the best design? Mary took a deep breath and blew it out slowly. "'Well, it's a compromise between size, cost, and viability. "'The design is tried and true. "'We could make them bigger, "'but then you're reducing the number you can put in the boat at one time. "'These don't work too well in strings, so you need a buoy for every one. "'But if you lose one, you only lose one, not the whole string.' "'She sipped her tea and considered. "'After a careful tick, she said, "'Yeah, that's the best for what we want at the moment. "'All right, how many do we ask them to cut out for us? "'I'm thinking twenty. "'Ask for a hundred, Mary said. "'It's just as easy once the cutters and fab unit are set up. "'We may want that many before the season's out, "'and I can't see us changing the design.' "'Rachel looked at the trap once more and nodded thoughtfully. "'I'll send the specs to Allen then.' "'Mary basked in the morning sun a bit before asking, "'Any thought to the kind of boat you want?' "'Oh, yeah, lots of thought. Just not a lot of decisions. "'Not too big. Standard dragger's too heavy, I think.' I wonder if we can get one of the utility tens with the pilot console moved forward, so the after section is open for handling traps. Talk to Jake Sampson up at the inlet. I bet he has that template, Mary suggested. Ask for a winch so you don't break your back hauling line all day. Standard electronics package? Mary shook her head. I'd ask for the full satellite nav, a full bottom feeler set, and radar. Remember, the standard utility comes with a binnacle, an instruction manual that says land is to the north. Rachel giggled. "Drew, I hadn't thought of that. After a moment, she asked, What am I forgetting? Bait, Mary said with an evil grin. Why do I think this is going to be nasty? Because it is. Crab bait should be stinky. The stinkier the better. They're scavenging bottom feeders, and they'll mob a carcass. Hmm. I could ask the draggers to save me a box of trash fish. Oh, run a trot line off the point. Otto can help there, she suggested shrewdly. You need to collect about a Bait fish for every two traps. Oily is better. Something like small jacks would be ideal, but really anything that's been dead for a couple of days and steeping in seawater should work. Rachel almost retched as she imagined the stench of a bucket of half-rotten fish. Gah, she said. Mary chuckled. It's not as bad as you think. You'll get used to it. Just keep your bait pails well away from the house. Rachel blinked and exclaimed, well away from the village, you mean. (laughs) Well, that too. But some of those 20-liter buckets they use for bulk food packaging work well. They have lids that seal up the stink, mostly. She pointed to a tall cylinder of pail stacked in the corner of the shop. Help yourself to some of those. We get them in with supplies for the pub. Covers are in the crate under the shelf there. Rachel grinned. You seem to have this pretty well thought out for somebody that just had it sprung on her a few days ago, she hinted slyly. Mary shrugged one shoulder and grinned back. Well, you know how it is. Lots of time, standing around, polishing glassware, plenty of time to be thinking. And I always thought we should be crabbing commercially, never did understand why we never diversified the fisheries. Well, the old man was a dragger man. He set the pattern, Rachel pointed out. True enough, Mary agreed, true enough. And it's taken a near disaster to get us out of that pattern. It usually does, Rachel said, thinking of Richard. It usually does. Thanks for listening to South Coast, a shaman's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Music is from Wish by Raphael Garcia-Perdigon. Available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandis, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For a website and more information on the golden age, visit www.durandis.org slash golden.